Hello, bonjour, entense. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. On Friday, October 13, 2023, the Supreme Court of Canada released a hotly anticipated ruling on Canada's Impact Assessment Act and whether or not it was constitutional. The government of Alberta had challenged the act, which laid out tough and comprehensive new rules to evaluate the environmental, economic, and social impacts of major infrastructure projects that fell under federal jurisdiction, everything from ports to pipelines. Alberta argued that the federal government had overstepped with the act and trespassed into areas of provincial jurisdiction. The act, formerly known as Bill C-69, passed the Senate in 2019 after some of the most comprehensive amendment and debate in Canadian parliamentary history. But on Friday, in a split 5-2 decision, the Supreme Court held that much of the law was unconstitutional. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice Richard Wagner said, quote, Courts may not, under the guise of cooperative federalism, erode the constitutional balance inherent in the Canadian federal state. What does it all mean? What happens next? I'm joined now by Eric Adams, a professor of constitutional law and Canadian legal history at the University of Alberta, and by Andrew Leach, a professor of energy and environmental economics and co-director of the Institute of Public Economics at the University of Alberta, who's cross-appointed to the Faculty of Law as well. Andrew, Eric, hello. Hey, great to be here. Longtime friend of the podcast, so uh, it's it's a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Well, er- Eric has been on the podcast. This is Andrew's debut, and I'm glad to have you both with me. So, Eric, first of all, this was perhaps not a typical Supreme Court case. It was a reference case where the Supreme Court was asked to weigh in with an opinion of the law overall. So does Friday's ruling mean that the Impact Assessment Act has been struck down? Let me start with a curiosity in Canadian constitutional law, which is actually that a huge number of our most important constitutional cases have been references. So it's actually not that atypical. If you look through the sweep of Canadian history from recent cases down to uh, those in the early 20th century, you will find a huge number of reference cases. So uh, this is a a, a unique thing that Canadian constitutional uh, law does and, and Canadian courts do that is not shared in other jurisdictions, which is the power of governments to ask courts questions. So they asked courts the question was or the Alberta government started started the the process by asking their court of appeal was this act constitutional and the answer given by the court of appeal uh, was that no it was not constitutional that was then appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada and then they give their advice their opinion their recommendation about whether the act is constitutional or not a majority, as you said, uh, five judges to two said, no, it was not for the most part constitutional. But that doesn't strike down the law, as you point out, in the typical sense. It's not a person who has initiated a constitutional challenge to a law that was affecting their particular interests. And when that happens, when somebody uh sues the government to say, you you can't prosecute me for this law, you can't uh, evaluate my project under this law, because that law is unconstitutional. In that case, in that scenario, the court will issue a constitutional remedy. And if they find that the law is unconstitutional, that remedy will be to strike down the law. But it's different. 
in a reference case. In a reference case, from the very beginning, it's just been a, a request by a government for an answer, for an opinion, for a recommendation. And so there's there's no sense in which the remedy issued by a reference case strikes down the law to take immediate effect. In that sense, it's different from what we, what we might think of as a classic constitutional case. Now, all that though said, uh, the reality is that governments in Canada have always fully complied with the recommendations, advice, and opinions of courts after a reference opinion. So even though this law, yes, it's on the books, no, it has not been struck down, the federal government will comply with the court's view that it is unconstitutional and they will repeal it, amend it, and um, uh, they will not uh, continue actions under it that the court questioned uh, as, as unconstitutional. So, Andrew, the federal government has long had jurisdiction to make decisions about environmental impact assessments in areas that were under federal jurisdiction. So why did this court think that this law went too far? So I, I think you, you hit the, the topic right on the head, which is the question of what is federal jurisdiction. And I think the most important aspect of this case was that the federal government and in arguing the case attempted to assert that federal jurisdiction over projects extended to any project development undertaking, whatever you want to call it, that had an effect in a very broad definition of federal jurisdiction. So that included you know, the obvious, you, you mentioned pipelines at the outset, um, uh, developments that affect First Nations land, Crown lands, etc., but they extended that to include uh, very nebulous concepts like have effects on the environment, transboundary pollution, et cetera. And it was there that the court took issue with the, with the law, that the ability to assume or presume a federal veto effectively over any project that might have such an effect and the ability to make decisions on the basis of some of those effects. So for example, um, a pipeline, we understand that you know, the federal government has the jurisdiction to decide yes or no on a pipeline. That's not going to change. But what this law would have allowed was, for example, for the federal government to assess a power plant within a province and to assess it on the basis of its socioeconomic impacts and to make a decision solely, potentially, on the basis of those socioeconomic impacts. And that's where the um, where the court said, no, you've just you've created a law that allows you potentially to go too far. You've expanded um, expanded the reach of the federal government into things that are far outside of its normal responsibility. So the court directed that those sections of which projects are assessed and how decisions are made in the end um, be. I guess, advise that those needed to be substantially, in my view, revised. So now Premier Jason Kenney uh, used to call this the No More Pipelines Act, and I think uh, Premier Smith has used some of the same language. So is what you're saying then that, in fact, this has no difference, this this decision makes no difference to the way pipelines would be uh, assessed and evaluated? Or It I makes say very limited difference. But, yeah. You know, I'd say there's one bit that... In Bill C-69, as, as you know well, of course, there, there were two pieces of legislation that affected pipelines. One was the Canadian Energy Regulator Act, and the second was the Impact Assessment Act. And the Canadian Energy Regulator Act was not touched directly by this reference at all. So that remains the, the binding statute with respect to building and operating pipelines. 
However, there are pieces of that Canadian Energy Regulator Act that dovetail with the Impact Assessment Act and that defer some of the assessment to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. So there will be some uh, potential impacts on the margins of how pipelines are assessed, but the core federal authority basically to say yes or no to a pipeline uh, does not change at all with this ruling. And that's because pipelines are interprovincial and run often on crown land. Is that the reason why then that they would be squarely in federal jurisdiction? It's the first of those. So section yeah. 9210 of the constitution says the province has jurisdiction over what they describe as works and undertakings other than those which cross a border between two provinces or that leave the borders of a province. So a pipeline going to BC, a pipeline going east or a pipeline going south from Alberta would all fall under federal jurisdiction in their entirety um, by virtue of the fact that they cross a, pro a provincial boundary. All right. Now, Eric, Chief Justice Wagner is very fond of the phrase pith and substance, um, which he uses a lot in his decision. What does he mean by that? It's a it's a great old legal expression, and and I don't know. Again, is is it particular to Canada? It it might be, but but in uh, in everyday terms, uh, it it simply means this: What is this law truly about? What is the essential character, the true nature of this law? And because lawyers like to be fancy, and because we like to justify the tuition that we charge our students, we turn everyday language into uh, words that people don't understand, like pith and substance. So what is the pith and substance of a law is really another way of saying, what is this law actually about? That question is a key one in constitutional law for this reason. When a level of government, it's the parliament or a provincial leg legislature passes a law, there, there's two questions that get asked by the courts. Question one, what is this law truly about? And then once you answer that question, the second question is, oh, okay, and now does this level of government have the jurisdiction to pass a law that's truly about that thing that that the law uh, before us is is uh, its characteristics are, and so in this case that would the, they had to answer those two questions: uh, the uh, IAA Impact Assessment Act. What is its true character? What is its pith and substance? What is it actually doing? And the majority and the dissent actually disagree. They and this often happens is that. Um, there's 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 power in how you describe something. And so if you describe it broadly um, and the majority described it fairly broadly as saying, look, this is a the purpose here. I, I don't have the language in front of me, but the purpose essentially is to evaluate uh, industrial projects on a, on a wide spectrum of, of social and economic uh, variables. And if that's what the law is truly about, then the second question is, does the federal government have jurisdiction to make assessments with that with that uh, with that purpose? And and there they said no. Uh, and, and as Andrew pointed out, the reason was is that many of these considerations are, are ones that may be good things to have considered. Is this uh, is this project going to in increase the social utility of uh, of life in Canada? I mean, that you maybe say, well, that's a reasonable thing to ask. But the problem is, is that 
that's not a, a an area that can be directly connected to something within federal jurisdiction. And so what the what the court said back to the federal government is, yeah, you can assess projects, but you can assess them on the basis of considerations that fall within your jurisdiction, not that uh, you know live under the sky. You, you just were too broad in in folding in all kinds of issues that you would uh, that you would be weighing. Don't weigh those. Uh, there's a, there's important aspects of provincial jurisdiction that you're invading when you do that. Stick to uh, stick to the stick to federal areas of jurisdiction. Right, because for people who are not as intimate with the act, I mean, it includes everything from you're you're asked to look at a project on the basis of how much it uh, it supports reconciliation with indigenous people, whether it supports uh, gender you know g- gender goals, um, all all kinds of things that are not about the physical environment but about the social environment I think that's a great way of putting it is that is that the 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 social environment became a, a major uh um consideration for for either approving or, or or setting conditions on industrial projects and you know when that when that happens you now have the federal government essentially making decisions um, that fall classically within areas of, of provincial jurisdiction. And, and the court said that uh, important as uh, climate change is as, a, as an issue, and they said it's certainly important, there's going to continue to be an important role for the Parliament of Canada in environmental regulation in this country. But the climate crisis does not upend the division of powers, and it does not allow the federal government to now take control of of issues that are really beyond its its uh, its jurisdictional powers. Now I have to say, Bill C-69, which created the Impact Assessment Act, arrived in the Senate right about the same time I did five years ago. Uh, and from the second I was sworn in, it was hu- hugely controversial. And it was the first big bill I ever worked on as a senator. And we held really comprehensive hearings. It was the first time in Canadian history that the Senate held hearings on a bill outside of Ottawa. We had very public hearings in Vancouver, Calgary, Fort McMurray, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, St. John, St. John, Halifax, Quebec City. And the Senate passed more than 100 amendments to the bill, and the government accepted 99 of them in whole or in part. And I, I think most of us thought we'd done our job, to be honest, but were we not seeing the forest for the trees? Were we were we too uh, paying too much attention to the fine detail and not paying attention to the to the pith and substance of the act. Yeah, I think that the big thing that for me always struck me in the act, and, and Eric and I have had a million conversations about this, was section seven. That is the the anchoring that says basically you cannot do anything in respect of any of these projects. You can't do anything to advance them until you have one of two things. Federal government saying, yes, you can do this, or the federal government saying, we don't care if you do it. You don't need an assessment. And so that created that blanket, almost federal veto, if you will, over projects. And and I think if you start from that point, then it's a very different piece of legislation. But where I think people leapt to quite quickly, and I I think the Senate hearings, I remember, I, I I think I testified here right before Jason Kenney, if I remember correctly. Um, and a lot of the focus was on those factors of assessment. You know, can the federal government care about all of these things? And, and absolutely, they can care about them. They just can't, as Eric said, they can't grab jurisdiction 
and they can't make decisions solely on that basis. And I think, you know, we got caught up a little bit in, well, what happens if the federal government thinks about climate change when it's assessing a project? And well, that's completely fine in the same way as federal government can think about jobs and local economic development and GBA plus and all of these other things when assessing a project. They just can't presume to make a decision solely on those grounds or to assess every project under the sun. And I think maybe, you know, go back if that had been the focus as opposed to the, you know, sort of laundry list of factors to be assessed, then maybe the the hearings would have followed a different uh, a different track. I don't know that you would have uh, seen the federal government sort of scale back this legislation at the time. I think there was still a sense that we needed a broader and and more kind of in, in a holistic assessment process on the part of this government. But I think it would have been a different way to travel. And interestingly, uh, the, the that Section 7 language actually appeared in the Harper legislation in 2012 as well. So there might have yeah. been an opportunity CIA, CIA there. SIA 2012, as it was called. In SIA yeah. 2012. And so it might have been an opportunity for some maybe a different type of discussion to say, you know, obviously both sides of this house believe that, you know, in the existing legislation or the new legislation, this is a power that the federal government should have. And, you know, I don't remember too many people raising that particular part of the legislation uh, to as great a degree as maybe that laundry list of, of assessment factors. Now, I thought it was interesting as I read Wagner's decision, because when the Alberta Court of Appeal decision came out, it was very fiery. It was written with a lot of incendiary rhetoric, if I can say that, uh, about about provincial rights. And Wagner said, no, no, the Alberta Court of Appeal also got it wrong in certain in certain areas. So, I mean, did he, is this court is this Supreme Court decision looking at different things than the Alberta Court of Appeal was looking at? Well, the um, I, I don't think the Alberta, the majority in the Alberta Court of Appeal is, is, is they, they probably feel reasonably vindicated in the sense that, that you know, they, they thought the legislation went too far, was unconstitutional. That's essentially what the majority of the court found. Um, one, of thing, one of the things, and I've been critical of the Alberta Court of Appeal judgment on these grounds uh, that, as you just suggested, Senator, was dropped from the majority opinion, and rightfully so, was that very angry, very political, accusatory language. Um, and I'll just name some of them. The Alberta Court of Appeal said, you know, Parliament was taking a wrecking ball to the Constitution, was putting Alberta in an economic chokehold, uh, really, you know, violent imagery that just, first of all, have no place in a judgment of an appeal court, um, because as the dissent pointed out of Justice Greckel, you're adding more heat than uh, than light to a, a an important issue, and and maybe she says we need some water um, in a time like this, and I, I think she was right about that. So all of that language falls away uh, in the majority judgment, and they do say that the Alberta Court of Appeal got the uh, pith and substance wrong. The the they, the majority would have described the the law slightly differently, but in the end, that didn't really matter because the holding tracked similarly to the Alberta Court of Appeal. And the, and the essence of that claim is, is this, is that 
you know, this this it's important to deal with climate change. Yes, you can still assess uh, projects. Uh, the federal government does not have to exit the field, but they just have to be more nuanced and tailored in what drives their decision-making process when they are approving or setting conditions for projects. Um, one of the things I think will be challenging for, for the revision is that is that the majority said, you know, collecting this broad information about social and economic matters, that's okay. You can, you can collect that information as part of your assessment process, but those factors can't then drive the decision. That's the distinction the majority tried to make. Um, you know, I wonder about how sustainable that truly is. And if, is that, is that really a practical distinction? But one of the things it's clear that the government lawyers uh, for Canada are going to have to try and do is say, well, how do we come back with a law that achieves much of the same purposes, uh, keeps parliament engaged in the environmental assessment game of, of industrial projects, but is more uh, is more bounded, if I can use the, uh, the the podcast word, to federal jurisdiction. That 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 might that might save the day. All right, so that that leads very nicely into my next question. How clever of you and of me. Uh, so what what are the Trudeau government's legal options now? And I suppose if we feel comfortable to ask, what are their political options? So I assume that's coming to me. Um, well, I mean, you, you can you know you can arm wrestle for it. I mean, since we're yeah. in three different places, that will not be very um, functional. Yeah, but you know, I, I think the the interesting political discussion of this, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll do a little side uh, side note that a lot of the precedent that the court cited here was actually a pipelines case. And it was the BC legislation, the BC legislature's attempt to derail Trans Mountain by writing their Environmental Management Act in such a way that it would be, it was basically seen to be not legislation in relation to the environment in BC, but legislation directly in relation to the Trans Mountain pipeline. And the court said, you know, no, at the time, BC Court of Appeal, upheld by the Supreme Court, said, no, this is in pith and substance, if we want to use those language, legislation in relation to an interprovincial pipeline or a piece of legislation. And I think that's got to be what guides the legal options for uh, the Trudeau government. And in part, I think maybe offers some political shelter as well, in the sense that, you know, we know, for example, and I think Premier Smith would agree that we don't want the Trudeau government to ignore, or the federal government in general, to ignore jobs, resource royalties, economic activity, et cetera, when assessing a pipeline. That's core to the provincial government's case on what should be on the table for the federal government. But those things are all squarely within provincial jurisdiction, right? Yeah. We want the federal government to say, wow, if we built this pipeline, or at least Daniel Smith would say, if we build this pipeline, oil production would increase. We don't want the federal government to just be looking at, do we want a giant steel tube running across the prairies and ignoring any economic activity induced by that? When they make a Fisheries Act decision about, can you cross a stream? We obviously want them to consider why we're building that pipeline. And if it's only, you know, the federal, uh, federal, kind of core federal jurisdiction pieces of why we're building that pipeline, it's going to be an incomplete analysis. They'd look at, you know, the endangered species, they'd look at the fisheries, and they'd have to close their eyes to all of these other impacts. And I think that's maybe where the political equilibrium is to say, look, yes, we need to consider both that some of these 
um, activities create very important positive economic spinoffs and some very important environmental and social consequences. And in the same, and and you know, maybe there's an ability there to say we're assessing these sort of holistically, but the decision still has to be, for example, going back to the fisheries question, the decision is not, do we want this pipeline? It's, are we prepared or do we want this project? Oil sands mine would be a better example in this case. Do we want this oil sands mine? It's, are we prepared to make the fisheries sacrifices that would be required to have this oil sands mine given all of the other benefits. And I think if we get back to that kind of framing, then there's a little bit more of a political choice. Um, maybe I'll add one more thing there, which I, I do think is sort of an, an interesting alternative is you heard Premier Smith yesterday, for example, talking about, well, now that this legislation's out of the way, all of these projects are gonna flood back in and everybody's gonna be lining up to invest in Alberta. Um, you know, there are dozens of oil sands projects that have all their regulatory approvals in hand right now and that have had them for years and no one's been rushing in to build those projects. So politically, I think there's a piece for the Trudeau government to say, you know, to what degree do we want to be seen as the entity that is keeping all of this development at bay? Tech was never going to build Frontier. They were maybe yeah. going to seek the regulatory approval and have it in hand as an option. But when they're losing money hand over fist on Fort Hills, they were never going to build Frontier. And so now they hide behind and say, well, it's the Trudeau government's fault that we're not building this. And that works well for the federal conservatives, works well for the Alberta government. But I think there's a piece here where the Trudeau government might not want to be continue to be seen as the only thing standing in the way of economic boom across the country. So, Eric, the law is not struck down. I can tell you, now that I am a parliamentarian, that passing a new law will take a long time. I mean, this is not something that they can just like dip in uh, quickly, you know, quickly fix a typo and and get things back to work. So what does this mean for projects that were currently under assessment? Will they still, I mean, will... If, if the law is not struck down, I mean, I guess technically they could still be assessed, but obviously practically that wouldn't make any sense. I think that's right. And I've, I've heard the, some early commentary from, from ministers saying, um, you know, that we uh, will continue to rely on, on the existing processes that are unfolding, but we will not do any of the things that the court said were unconstitutional um in in the final stages of those projects uh, assessments that are underway i i don't quite know how pr practical that is or if those lines are easily drawn but they will they will obviously want to be a balance between absolutely respecting the court's decision and not being seen to be thumbing their nose or playing fancy with the judgment by no constitutional lawyer thinks it's a good idea for the government to say, well, actually, that was just an opinion, so we can do what what we like. Um, I, I don't see the government saying that, um, and it would be bad if they if they did. But I do think that it's it's significant that the, the that the law remains effectively on the books, that projects remain underway. Obviously, parties in good faith have undertaken considerable costs in trying to deal with that 
process. And so you don't want to sink all of those efforts and all and flush all of that, uh, all of those resources that uh, have been expended. Um, so I think I think th- you know there's some questions to ask about how to do that in a way that respects the judgment and also respects the parties that have been before this process. And then the second question you asked, Senator, is you know how realistic is um, our amendments and and when might might when might we see them? And you know two things occur to me. One is that it's possible that government lawyers behind the scenes have been preparing for this day, this possibility. So they may not be starting at stage one. They may have been thinking about how to respond uh, if this was the decision that was reached. Uh, And two, um, you know, again, you have to park a little bit of the political rhetoric from um, the people who are saying, you know, this means uh, that industrial activity is fully provincial, you know, federal government be gone, um, projects, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, we will, we will approve you. Some of the things that Premier Smith said right after the decision just, um, are, are, are not going to come to come to be. Uh, there's no way to read this judgment as saying that the federal parliament can have no role in environmental assessment. They clearly will continue to have an ongoing role in assessing industrial projects. Um, so they're going to be working hard to come up with the tailored version of this legislation that does that. I'd be a little surprised if they send themselves back to the drawing board. That's one possibility. That will take longer. Um, my hunch is, is that they keep the basic pr- um, process in place, but narrow the language uh, that we talked about at the at the start of this podcast that that really extended their decision making into very broad social and economic factors. Narrow that to to hone in on truly federal issues. Make it clear that that's what the decision should focus on, and. Um, I think that is something we will see in, you know, whether we see it this uh this sitting of parliament or not, we 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 may, but but we're we're not gonna have to wait years uh for a revision to this legislation to be my view. All right. I have one final question for each of you. Andrew, environmental concerns have never been more pressing, I think, in the public mind. We've had a summer of fires, of floods, of drought, of record high temperatures. And people aren't just worried about climate change. They're worried about all other, you know, more localized environmental considerations. So bouncing off this, this judgment, how does a federal government lead legislatively on the environment file in a confederation such as ours? Well, I think that is one of the, will be one of the lasting impacts of this decision is I, I think the federal government tried to extend their jurisdiction and Chief Justice Wagner really points it out, you know, they tried to almost come through the back door to get jurisdiction over a broad swath of the environment and climate change, et cetera. And, you know, we'll concentrate on the specifics of the act, sure, but I think the most powerful stuff is that the court repudiates almost this view that transboundary pollution is necessarily federal and that there's some broad um, federal power over um, things of this nature. And, and I think this was a little bit the court saying, we're not prepared to give you that. And a little bit of the court saying, uh, if you wanted it, you had a process to go through and you just didn't argue it. You tried to sneak it in. And, you know, depending on which way you view that, I think it it becomes, it sets up a much larger hurdle for some of those broad-based environmental policies that 
uh, this federal government or a future federal government might want to uh, to have. So, you know, we concentrate on the act and the environmental assessment, but I think maybe those, I think it's in the 180s, those paragraphs that will come to be, you know, when people read those more carefully, I think they're going to find, you know, this was a bit of a balancing from how people read the carbon tax reference to say sort of this is a critical problem. And this is, you know, this legislation, and I think people read in brackets, and a lot of other stuff would fit into the federal government's ambit. And I think this is the court uh, giving a pretty strong signal that no, there's not a, a necessarily this strong plenary power uh, for the federal government to legislate in this space, despite uh, the political wins that might uh, that might push for it. And Eric, I want to ask you. I mean, reference cases, as you've referenced in the past, have been you know hugely important. Whether that was the Persons case or the uh, same-sex marriage case, I mean, they they have ramifications that go beyond just what the topic in question was. So what do you think the impact of uh, Chief Justice Wagner's decision is going to be in our in our greater understanding of the balance of confederation and how our constitution work going forward? I actually think this decision is in in line with a with a number of others that uh, at similar moments um, intervened in the political and legal discussion just to remind Parliament of a, of a core and important feature of, of Canadian constitutional life, which is federalism, and that dealing with massive problems um, is, is never going to be solved by trying to ignore or erase the fact of provinces and, and their very real jurisdiction. That diversity uh, at the provincial level is baked into the existence of Canada it's baked into our constitutional law and it can't be changed. So think about the ways that the federal parliament tried to respond after the Great Depression. Uh, the, the, those cases in the 1930s said, you know what, this economic catastrophe is serious, but federal government, you can't just wipe away the existence of provinces. After the financial crisis, parliament said, let's have a national regulation of, of securities um, in this country. That, that will uh, to help to, to deal with financial issues. Supreme Court of Canada said, Parliament, you've got to remember that there are provinces, you've got to work with that system. Yes, you have areas of jurisdiction here, but not sweeping jurisdiction to deal with uh, this crisis. You've got to work with provinces. Similarly, uh, the way I read this case is that uh, climate change is real. It's not going to alleviate any of the pressures on our political actors to act at both the federal and provincial level. Uh, but the crisis itself does not erase provincial jurisdiction. And so Parliament has to be mindful of that when it drafts legislation dealing with environmental assessments, when it deals with climate change. Um, but I don't expect that this judgment, um, despite what some have said, radically rewrites our federation in any real sense. Rather, I think it's a, it's actually just a continuation of a, of a longstanding truth about Canada, which is that uh, we have a division of powers between two levels of government. They sometimes squabble between them about where those lines are drawn. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, this country wouldn't work if it were otherwise. Eric Adams is a professor of constitutional law and Canadian legal history at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Andrew Leach is a professor of energy and environmental economics and a professor of law at the University of Alberta. And his brand new book, Between Doom and Denial, Facing Facts About Climate Change, will be released October 17th by Sutherland House. 
and Andrew will also be giving a series of public lectures as part of McGill University's Max Bell Lecture Series on October 19th in Ottawa, on October 25th in Calgary, and on November 2nd in Montreal. Thank you very much, Eric and Andrew, and thank you to all of you for downloading and listening. If you like us, leave a review or a rating, share a link, or tell a friend. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Independent Alberta Senator Paula Simons. Merci and hi hi.